This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So this is the outline of what I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, so first I'm going to just define what a periprosthetic fracture is and make sure that we're all on the same page there. And then I'm going to talk about why we fix them, how we fix them, how we choose amongst the, var- the various tools that I'm going to explain to you, and then talk a little bit about the outcomes. Pretty similar outline to a lecture I gave once before for those of you who might have been here. All right, so first of all, what is a periprosthetic fracture? What are we even talking about? So um, periprosthetic fracture, there's basically two parts to that word. Peri, of course, just means around, and prosthetic means an implant. Okay, so these are fractures that occur around an orthopedic implant. Okay. So that seems relatively straightforward, relatively simple. Of course, like everything, the devil's in the details, and there are a lot of details for this particular topic. So first of all, so we're going to go over each one of these two words. Okay, so first of all, what does it mean to be around? Okay, so as a turn, I just picked one example here, which is around a total hip implant on the femur side. Okay, so we subclassify the word around when it comes to periprosthetic fractures of the femur around a total hip using a classification called the Vancouver classification, which is diagrammed up here. And you can see that we've got a lot of different subtypes. We've got A's and B's and C's, and within the A's and the B's, there's different subclassifications depending on where the fracture is and where the bone stock is, okay? And the point here is not to have you memorize that classification, but the point is to demonstrate that even just saying the word around, periprosthetic, uh, the peri part, is not quite that straightforward, okay? Depending on where that fracture is relative to the femoral anatomy and relative to the prosthesis really alters how we have to manage these injuries, okay? So that's one part of it. That's the peri part. And then there's the prosthetic part. And, of course, you're probably aware that there are lots of different types of prostheses out there. And I'm not talking about using company A or company B, I'm talking about the various joints that we're able to replace. So common uh, joint replacements that occur contemporarily are hip and knee replacements, but we also have shoulder replacements, we have elbow replacements, we even have replacements for bones in the big toe. Okay, so there's lots of different implants out there, and you can imagine that treating a fracture around an implant in the shoulder is not the same as treating an implant fracture or a fracture around an implant at the knee. Okay. Furthermore, within each one of these categories of prosthesis, there's a lot of subcategories. You can see in the second picture there of the two knee prostheses. Okay? There's a big difference between the prosthesis on the right and the prosthesis on the left. One is a first-time knee replacement, one is a second-time knee replacement. And you could imagine fractures around those two implants are not the same, even though you might call them a periprosthetic fracture around a total knee. Okay? So again, the, the devil's in the details, and it's our job to, to know those details. Um, One further complicating thing in the literature, uh, more than uh, for this talk, is what's a prosthesis even, okay? So uh, are these prostheses, okay? And I would argue for the sake of tonight's talk, these are not prostheses, these are implants. Uh, So what am I talking about here? So my life involves putting metal in, in the human body, okay? That's a lot of what I do. But there's sort of two categories of implants that I deal with. One are implants like this that are designed to fix fractures, okay? And the nice thing about all these implants is their lifespan is long enough to let the bones heal around a broken, uh, around a fractured bone. 
um, but they're not meant to last a lifetime. They're meant to last as long as it takes for a fracture to heal, okay? Which means if you fracture again around one of these implants and it's already done its job, I can simply remove that implant, okay? That's not always the case around these implants. Um, you can't just take out a total knee. Uh, you have to, at the very least, put in a new one. So these implants are meant to, to last the lifetime of a patient, and that's part of the difficulty with managing them, okay? As again, as opposed to these implants, which are designed for fracture healing and by definition are, are temporary, although we always are frequently leaving them in the body permanently, okay? So for the sake of tonight's talk, we're talking about prosthetic joints, artificial joints, not about fracture implants, okay? Although these also cause another category of issues. Okay, so that's what a periprosthetic fracture is. It's a fracture around an implant, okay? And is this common? It's becoming common, okay, because Implants in the human body are becoming more common. So periprosthetic fractures weren't common 50 years ago because prostheses weren't common, okay? And they're still not common in developing countries where prostheses are rare. However, prostheses are not rare in the United States. This is actually quite a famous study that was done a few years ago uh, by a group uh, headed by this guy named Katz that showed the likely uh, rate uh, or prevalence of total hip and total knee arthroplasty in this country over the next several decades. And you can see it is going to take off. We're just at that takeoff point. So several hundred thousand of these implants are going to go in every year. And of course, people with hip replacement may live for many, many years. And so the number of individuals with prostheses in this country is going to be in the millions in the next several decades. So what once was a very uncommon problem is becoming more and more common. Okay. So uh, to sum up there, this is an increasingly common problem, okay? It's not just one thing. It's a bunch of diagnoses that all carry this, this term, periprosthetic, and each one has its own surgical challenges and, and prognoses, although for the sake of tonight's uh, talk, we're going to try to group them all together, okay? So that's what a periprosthetic fracture is. So why do we fix them? Okay, uh, we fix these generically to preserve two things. The first one is the quality of someone's life. Okay, so if you have a fractured bone and we restore the anatomy, um, either by a prosthetic replacement or fixing the bone, we hopefully restore your function, you know, your ability to bear weight and the ability for the joint to move. Okay. The bigger reason, though, is trying to maintain someone's quantity of life. Uh, if you treat these sort of injuries, like many things in orthopedics, uh, in the lower extremity non-operatively, that involves a prolonged period of bed rest and immobilization and all the complications that come with that, okay? Um, and these injuries tend to occur in the more elderly population uh, who are less tolerant of these sort of problems, okay? So the big reason we fix these is to get people out of bed, weight-bearing is tolerated if, if possible, okay? Because although what we do technically is to take this problem and turn it into that solution, the global thing that we're doing, okay, is we're trying to take the old lady on the right and turn her into the old lady on the left or vice versa, sorry. We want to get this lady up, out of bed, okay, um, to avoid the complications of being in bed, okay? All right, so that's why we fix them. We want to get people out of bed. We want them to be working with therapy, having their lungs expand, having their heart beat, having their kidneys work, their GI system work, and that's all done by getting people out of bed. And that preserves people's quantity of life and, of course, their quality of life. Our, our hope is to get people back to their prior level of functioning, although it doesn't always happen. All right, so now for the meat of the talk, um, which is 
how do we deal with these problems, okay? And again, the devil's in the details, which we're not going to uh, uh, go into, but um, the, the basic outline is that there's two options, okay? You have a broken bone with an implant in it, and you can either fix it, we call that open reduction internal fixation, or we can do a revision arthroplasty, okay? So we can take out the old implant, and we can put in a new one, all right? Um, so I'm going to go over these in a little bit more detail and then try to um, help you guys figure out how we choose between these two options, okay? So internal fixation, okay? So this is what we do when we try to internally fix a fracture, all right? So there's the implant, okay? I've made a bad cartoon of the implant. And there's the broken bone, very simplified, okay? When we perform an open reduction and internal fixation, what we do is we get that bone back together where it belongs, okay? In the old implant hasn't been touched. And then we apply some sort of fixation. In this case, I'm badly diagramming a plate on the side of the femur. And then there's a series of wires and screws, okay, that are then going to hold that bone and implant where it needs to be until eventually the fracture unites. And then that implant is no longer performing a function. It's just sitting there, okay? So again, with, with this procedure, the goal is to restore the patient's native anatomy line the bones back up, and hold it there with some sort of implant until the bone heals, okay? And then ultimately, the implant is just sitting there quiescent. It's not doing anything anymore. The, the bone has united, and it's holding the patient's body weight again. So that's option one, okay? The challenges of this is that the bone quantity and quality is often low, Okay, and that's because these uh, injuries typically happen in the geriatric population and people's bone health deteriorates over time. Okay, and also there's an implant in there and the implant takes up space. Okay, and although we can do things like drill through bone, we cannot drill through titanium and stainless steel and cobalt chrome. Okay, and so there's this big device in the way that if we're trying to perform internal fixation, really alters how we would do it compared to if the implant was not there. So we often have less robust fixation because of bone quality and because of the implant that's in there. And that reduces our ability sometimes to let patients immediately weight bear. Okay, so I'll show you an example. So this is a patient that has a femur fracture that doesn't have an implant in place. Okay, this is a very old picture. And the way this was fixed was by putting this big metal rod down the middle of the femur. Okay, this works very well. Even in the first generation of these implants back in the 1980s, like 98% of people healed this. And most of the time, you can let this person weight bear right away. You do surgery, and immediately after surgery, they can get up and put weight on it. Okay, now if you take a similar injury and all you do is put a hip replacement in the way, you can't put a metal rod in the femur anymore. The implant is physically in the way. Okay, so you have to come up with a new strategy, and that new strategy is to use a plate and screws and wires that are on the outside of the bone, okay? Because there's just no space for a metal rod anymore. The problem with that is that metal plate and its position on the bone is very biomechanically inferior to the rod that was in the center of the bone. So your bodies are very intelligent. They are designed inherently to place your body weight through the center of bone, right? Just, just makes sense, right? That's where you can have the most load, most bang for the buck. This plate is not in the center of the bone. It's just to the outside of the bone, but that substantially increases the amount of stress that that plate is going to feel as compared to a rod that's in the center. So it's in a biomechanically inferior position. It's also not as um, physically substantial as a nail. 
And so because of that, the fixation isn't as robust, but there's no alternative in this case. So the pros of internal fixation are that we maintain your native bone, we put your native bone back together and it heals, but the cons, the challenges, um, is again, the implants in the way. People often have relatively inferior bone quality, and so because of that, even after we fix it, we can't often let these people immediately weight bear. These are also big surgeries, and they're in unprepared, often frail elderly, okay? No one goes electively to get their periprosthetic fracture fixed. It always happens unexpectedly and without any preparation for a major surgery. And I'll show some data later, but these patients, um, uh, compared to patients who are getting first-time hip and knee replacements, are significantly older and significantly more frail. So it's a very big operation and a very frail, unprepared patient, okay? So that's option one, internal fixation. The other option is a revision arthroplasty, okay, and that's what, this is what this, this looks like. So same thing, we got the blue implant, we got a broken bone around it, okay? Different strategy this time. I decide, you know what, forget it. I'm going to take that old implant out, okay? I'm going to line the bone back up, and now I'm going to put a new, bigger implant in there. And what this bigger implant does is it binds to a different portion of the bone. So that implant is actually bypassing the fragment that's closer to the hip, the proximal fragment, and it's just biting into that red area that's, that's beyond the fracture, okay? And so there's some benefits to this. Um, the benefit is that you can now typically let people weight bear immediately because you are bypassing the fracture with this implant, okay? However, there are consequences to bypassing that fracture, okay? Sometimes it won't unite, and there are muscular attachments and things like that that affect function. And also, when bone doesn't experience any load, um, it uh, deteriorates over time. It's called Wolf's Law. So when you load bone, it tends to build up. When you don't load bone, what we call stress shielding, it tends to lose its integrity. And so all that bone proximal to where the implant is binding is now not experiencing load and can be expected to deteriorate in terms of its quality over time. Okay? It's one of the reasons we don't try to bind into areas in the distal portion of the femur with a first-time surgery. Okay. The challenges of this procedure are relatively similar to the challenges of open reduction trilaxation. Again, of course, the bone quality um, is uh, the same for these patients. Generally, it tends to be poorer than the younger population. The implant it doesn't get in the way anymore because we're going to remove it, but removing it isn't always that easy. Okay. These implants uh, that we put in hip and knee prostheses are designed to bind to your bone for a lifetime when we put them in. So they're not just sitting there waiting to get plucked out all the time. So that's a problem, okay? And then again, we were relying on the bone distal to the fracture site usually to bear all the load, and the, the bone proximal above the fracture site is no longer experiencing load, and there's some, uh, some real um, physiologic consequences to that. But one of the benefits of binding to bone below the level of the fracture, beyond the fractures, we can usually allow immediate weight bearing, okay? So this is an extreme example, okay? where you could say, all right, I'm just going to get rid of the entire proximal fragment. I'm going to put a prosthesis in there that totally um, uh, replaces the proximal femur and allows immediate weight bearing. Again, benefits of revision arthroplasty as opposed to ORAF are immediate weight bearing. Cons are pretty similar to ORAF. It's a big surgery. Patient's not expecting to undergo this big surgery. It's not done electively. But as opposed to ORAF, there's a loss of native bone stock, or at least the use of native bone stock in these cases. Okay. So two pretty significantly different options. So how do we decide which one to use? Okay. 
so th there's really just a small number of questions actually that I ask myself when I'm trying to decide between these two procedures. The first one is, is the implant that was in there from before, is it still well fixed to bone? Okay. If the answer to that is yes, then I will often try to fix the prosthesis. Okay. So if there's a large chunk of bone that the prosthesis is attached to, then I will try to fix into that piece of bone to fix the broken fragment back to the, uh, the remainder of the bone, okay? So if there's bone that's still attached to that prosthesis, I often will try to fix it, okay? If the answer is no, if the bone around the prosthesis is no longer attached to the prosthesis, then we will tend to do a revision arthroplasty, okay? So uh, you can see the, the, the bone around that hip prosthesis is kind of splayed open, okay? That's a sign that that bone and that cement, in this case, is no longer attached to the prosthesis. That prosthesis is loose, okay? So if you fix all the bony fragments back together, you may get those bony fragments to heal, but you still have a prosthesis that's no longer attached to bone, okay? A loose prosthesis, and that's painful. People can't generally walk on that. So that's a scenario where we'll remove the old prosthesis and perform a revision arthroplasty, okay? So that's question number one, is, is the prosthesis still attached to native bone? If yes, I like to try to fix that native bone back and get it to heal. If no, then we'll remove the loose implant and do a revision arthroplasty, okay? All right, the second question is, what is the quality of the remaining bone stock, all right? So in this example, um, when uh, we evaluate the, the bone around the proximal, uh, sorry, when we evaluate the bone around the um, femoral prosthesis, um, it's of relatively good quality. There's a nice thick cortex. That's, the, that's that white line around either side of uh, the hip implant. And so uh, I can do things like put screws into it and expect a reasonably substantial bite. Okay, so if the bone quality is good, Again, I like to try to fix it simply because fixation is more likely to be feasible. I'll actually get a purchase with the implant. As opposed to a femur that looks like this, okay? So the bone around this femur, you can kind of see there's a big, uh, there's a, a large black area around there. That's all bone that is resorbed over time. Okay, that, that proximal femur around the implant is kind of like an eggshell at this point, okay? so. Just technically trying to put all that back together uh, and make a proximal femur out of it can be very challenging. And in fact, so challenging that sometimes it's better to not try to attempt to put this eggshell back together, but simply perform a revision arthroplasty that again bypasses that poor quality bone and gets into higher quality bone below it. Okay? So that's the second thing we, I look for. Uh, is, the, is the bone quality good enough to allow technically for an open reduction internal fixation or do I need to bypass all that bone that's of low quality, okay? The last thing that's very important is what are the weight-bearing needs of the patient? I told you before that internal fixation doesn't always allow us to immediately let the patient weight bear and revision arthroplasty often does. So you can imagine this is a guy here who maybe he's 73 or whatever, but um, could probably tolerate using crutches for three months if I asked him to, to stay off of his broken hip. So in that case, I might put this back together and ask him to use crutches for a few months and that strategy would be successful, okay? And then there are other patients who perhaps reside in a nursing home walk very short distances, who if I ask them to not put weight on their leg, that's going to translate into them not getting out of bed, okay? 
And in that scenario, uh, it might be better, rather than fixing their bone and not letting them put weight on it, to do the revision arthroplasty and allow them to immediately weight bear, because that may be the difference between getting out of bed and not. And again, that's really the whole purpose of these procedures, is to get people up and out of bed, because we know the morbidity and mortality risk of uh, keeping octogenarians in bed is high. Okay, so that's another thing that, uh, that drives our decision making. A couple other things I was going to talk about is who does these procedures, okay? Um, so um, it's a combination of problems, right? There's a hip replacement or a knee replacement in place, and usually an arthroplasty surgeon does that uh, sort of procedure, but there's also a fracture. As it turns out, there's a whole group of orthopedic surgeons, trauma surgeons, who tend to deal with those sort of injuries. And there's not a whole lot of us who are trained to deal with both. We all train to do both to some extent as residents, but there are very few people that are fellowship trained in both arthroplasty and trauma. Okay? Uh, and so I would argue that really the best person to treat these problems is, is an institution that can handle this problem. Okay? Um, so it's nice to be able to come to a center, a tertiary referral center like UCSF, where you have trauma surgeons, where you have arthroplasty surgeons. And if you need to do an arthroplasty, that's available by an expert. If you need a uh, significant ORAF, that's available from a trauma surgeon. Or if you need a combination of both, you can have both those surgeons in the room to deal with that problem. So having a tertiary referral center where the skill set of the surgeon is not driving the decision one way or the other, I think is an important important thing to consider. Unfortunately, we have that here. Uh, last thing I'll touch on are the outcomes. So there's a number of complications uh, that uh, can occur with these procedures. They're all uh, big procedures, again, in an unprepared population. And you can have all the complications that I've listed there. However, one, the big ones are at the bottom, okay? So there is a uh, frequent loss of independence uh, with these sort of injuries. Uh, only about 20% of these people end up going directly home. So 80% go to a rehab center for a period of time. And the in-hospital mortality rate, not 30-day, not one year, the in-hospital mortality rate is about 5%, which is extremely high compared to hip fractures or uh, similar injuries. Okay, And again, this has to do with the age of the patient, which tends to be older, and um, also the magnitude of the surgery that is required. Okay, so um, unfortunately, the outcomes for this are uh, are not great. So, uh, in summary, um, periprosthetic fractures—they're fractures that occur around an implant. But there's a lot of things that uh, around can mean. There's a lot of things that uh, a prosthesis can be, and so it's really a heterogeneous group of diagnoses. We treat them to improve people's quality of life, but also quantity of life. All right, we can either fix them or we can do a revision arthroplasty procedure where we do a second time joint replacement. And we make that decision based off of how much bone is attached to the prosthesis, what the quality of that bone is, and also what the weight bearing needs of the patient are. Okay, and fortunately here at UC, we have all the necessary skills and uh, so we can take a team approach if necessary. Complication rates are high, okay, including the major ones of mortality and loss of independence. Okay. And that's all I have. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Coughlin. Geriatric fractures are special. And uh, again, I'm, going to, I'm not going to define what a geriatric 
uh, fracture is. Uh, it's uh, essentially uh, uh, a broken bone in somebody who's had uh, had some experience in life and been around the block. And again, many of the things that Dr. Tugood discussed earlier around the, the prost prosthetic fractures and problems are um, indeed uh, considerations for ankle fractures. So uh, just as Dr. Tugut, I have no financial uh, disclosures as uh, I am the director of the Institute for Global Orthopedics and Traumatology. So uh, I'll give you uh, my brief outline, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the structure of an ankle. Uh, it's part of the lower extremities, uh, so that in, in itself uh, is very significant when we talk about lower extremity uh, injuries and fractures. Uh, we've got to put a lot of weight through those uh, injuries, and that's very different than falling and breaking your elbow or your wrist or dislocating your shoulder. Uh, you can still walk around. You can get to the bathroom. You can, you know, get to the refrigerator, uh, the, the key things in life. But um, uh, so we are going to go over a little bit of the ankle anatomy. Uh, uh, once again, talking about uh, uh, how we go about, uh, why we go about, and how we go about uh, fixing broken bones uh, around the ankle. Uh, we're definitely going to spend uh, a lot more time to uh, talk about the considerations about what makes these uh, fractures so challenging and, and uh, different. And, and that uh, um, uh, comes with age and experience, and we're going to go into that. And then finally, I'll, I'll give you examples of uh, how we go about uh, uh, the challenges of trying to fix some of these uh, ankle fractures. Again, hopefully restoring function, hopefully getting uh, patients back, uh, back home. When we talk about the challenges in an, in an older patient, uh, the geriatric pa patient, uh, first of all, what the, the fact is we're seeing a lot more uh, geriatric fractures. You know, it, we are an aging uh, population, uh, generally speaking. People do live longer. That's a global phenomena. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the medical doctors are, are keeping us ticking and, and doing all sorts of other things to keep us, keep us around for a lot longer. And so friends that are in their 90s and even hundreds are still uh, have pretty good mental capacity and, and uh, are with us and uh, uh, so th there are more of us, and, and uh, I'm included at age 65. I, I think I'm becoming geriatric. Um, so uh, uh, there's a lot more of us, and so we do see a lot more of these fractures to deal with. Uh, certainly as we get older, as you all know, and I think on some of the previous uh, lectures, uh, we, we get weaker bone, and uh, you know, it just comes, comes with age comes with decreasing physical activity. Uh, these are things that are uh, uh, just uh, inevitable. We try to, you know, the medicine folks try to get, uh, get you to take some pills and things like that, and we try to encourage you to swim and walk. Uh, but inevitably, uh, your bones are, are going to become thinner and, and weaker. Uh, so that's a challenge uh, that we have to deal with. Uh, many of us, not all of us, but um, uh, again, with age, uh, circulation can, can change. Again, uh, not, uh, much less smoking as a, 
uh, uh, causative factor in uh, in our patient uh, population. But uh, uh, again, the longer you live, the blood vessels don't always keep up with the, with the need. Um, certainly the, the other enormous problem that we see globally and certainly locally uh, is just the increasing number of uh, diabetic patients. And this is, uh, is not uncommon and um, I, I could throw statistics at you. There's quite harrowing the statistics in terms of the number of uh, diabetic patients uh, that uh, uh, we're challenged with, and 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 also um, not just uh, uh, patients that have adult onset, but uh, patients that have had diabetes early on, been reasonably well uh, controlled with their diabetes. Um, we see many. Uh, again, I've spent my the majority of my career at San Francisco General, a county hospital, and uh, it's rather sobering and frightening uh, the the amount of diabetic patients that we deal with who haven't been treated. And really, that's um, that, that's a, uh, an enormous uh, problem that we uh, we see. And uh, unfortunately, I, I happen to be probably the person that amputates more legs in the Bay Area uh, based on diabetes and poor circulation and poor healthcare systems. So, despite uh, patting ourselves on the back and saying we have a you know good healthcare system, and I think we do from a public health perspective, we still have an enormous number of patients and, and folks that live in our communities that haven't accessed uh, you know, good health care services. And so um, it's, it's a huge problem that uh, it just is not, not getting smaller, it's getting much larger. Uh, the other thing that Dr. Tugud uh, mentioned and uh, discussed, uh, which is really an, an enormous one, is that just your uh, inability, the older you get, the more frail you get, the weaker you get, uh, and the like, uh, is your inability as you're an octogenarian and, and more or have multiple medical comorbidities, just your inability to actually weight bear uh, or not weight bear. So to keep weight off of one extremity uh, is, is dooming to many of our patients. They can't do it. And uh, as Paul had mentioned, uh, you know, our strategy is to try to do something that we can allow patients to put some weight on that extremity, frequently we can't. There's nothing. There's no um, uh, metal strong enough, or screws big enough, or uh, the like, for us to be able to fix something well enough. So when we're, when it applies specifically to the ankle, which I'll uh, delve into, uh, it's just it's just a smaller bone. We don't have. We can't replace the. Uh, the foot and put, uh, unless you're an amputator, uh, and put a prosthesis on that way. Um, so ankle fractures require a period of, of uh, non-weight bearing or minimal weight bearing. And that's a challenge in, uh, in somebody who is debilitated. Um, uh, and further, uh, as we get older, the, the number of uh, um, people that have suffer from other mental uh, issues, visual uh, disabilities and capacities are increasing also. So, um, you know, with, with increasing uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, um, it's just very, very challenge, challenging, and these are things that we have to deal with. So uh, we're going to go uh, d delve into, uh, you know, what is an ankle fracture, and, and uh, really, um, fortunately, in, in the older age population, uh, unless they're dodging cars in the tenderloin, um, are by and large 
caused by a twisting or torsional injury. So we like to say a lower energy kind of, uh, of uh, mechanisms are, are really what uh, bring the, the patient into the, uh, the person into the emergency room and, uh, and finds the orthopedic surgeon. And, and really the, the concept that will drive home is the concept of stability. So if it's a simple, non-displaced, hairline kind of fracture, uh, those are stable injuries and, and um, uh, can be treated conservatively and with a cast and, uh, and the like. Um, that's, that forms a, a certain number of these uh, fractures. And those aren't the, the fractures typically that we deal with, but they may be um, a simple uh, type of fracture. Uh, many times just the ligaments uh, uh, in, in an older patient are actually stronger than the bone. So when you have some twisting injury, sometimes you just pull off little flakes of bone. And we call that a fracture, but that's really a little bit more like ligamentous injuries. So ankle sprains end up rather than um, uh, tearing the ligaments actually just will pull off uh, flakes of bone and people will call that uh, chip fractures or fractures, but it really can be treated uh, much like uh, an ankle sprain. So if we look at an ankle and you're looking at a right ankle, uh, if the patient is sitting in front of you, um, we'll just go over some of the terms so that you become a little bit more knowledgeable when somebody says, I broke my fibula or my lateral malleolus, it's that skinny bone that, that sits out to the left. Um, the tibia bone being the, the bigger, fatter bone that takes up uh, more weight bearing. Uh, the medial malleolus, so the bump that's on the inside of your ankle uh, is to the right. And then the, the bone that sits within the ankle uh, mortis, uh, ankle joint, is called the talus. So this is a, the blue line is just a depiction of, of what the ankle joint is, and it really is a mortise uh, in carpentry. So this uh, tenon or the talus fits nicely within this uh, mortise of, uh, of an ankle joint formed by the tibia and fibula. And there, there's really, a, it's pretty finely uh, constrained, uh, meaning it doesn't, um, ankles don't particularly like to be sloppy. Um, and that's very much the case in ankle fractures or significant ligamentous uh, injuries. So we're going to talk about, again, stability, but we're going to talk about the ligamentous anatomy around the ankle joint. So uh, part of this stability is in, uh, incurred through the, the mortise, the bony structures themselves. But as many of you probably have had an, an ankle sprain or two in your lives, uh, the ankle ligaments are extremely important. The, the red structures are the outside or lateral ankle ligaments, and this is your you know, 95% of your most common ankle sprains are due to uh, three sets of, of ligaments that sit on the outside of your ankle that connect your fibula to your talus. Uh, on the other side, or the inside part of your ankle, is a stronger, stouter uh, type of ligament, much uh, less commonly injured, and that's called the deltoid ligament. And again, that goes from the medial malleolus uh, to the talus. 
And finally, the other significant um, ligamentous structures is uh, found between the skinny bone, the fibula, and the big fat bone, the tibia. And those uh, three lines constitute the syndesmosis of the ankle joint. And that's, those ligaments are pretty strong and they constrain uh, the space between the skinny bone and the big bone. So there is some small amount of motion that actually does physiologically occur uh, around the ankle joint. And in fact, uh, many of you that uh, follow football have probably heard of their uh, favorite quarterback getting a high ankle sprain. So that's, that depicts a high ankle sprain is when you uh, injure those uh, syndesmotic ligaments above. But when we have, again, talking about uh, older geriatric uh, ankle injuries, we're going to talk about a combination of both ligamentous and, and bony uh, injuries, uh, such that if you understand the, these malleoli, um, you'll understand that by breaking them, you lose stability uh, within that mortise. So it should be fairly simple to see on the picture to the left, uh, a depiction of the talus torsionally or twisting out to the outside actually ripped the ligament or the deltoid ligament where that big black space is. So that's a ligamentous injury, but the forces continued and there's a torsion or spiral fracture uh, to the fibula or skinny bone. So that is an unstable uh, injury of the ankle. And then the, the, the x-ray to the right depicts um, a uh, right ankle that you're looking at uh, and with the talus actually breaking the, the skinny bone a little bit higher and pulling off a part of the medial malleolus. So these are increasingly more unstable injuries and need uh, to be fixed. So once again, um, what else can happen? Well, you can actually break all three malleoli, and I, and I didn't, I failed to uh, point out the posterior malleolus. So the medial malleolus is to the to the left, blue arrow. Uh, the lateral ma uh, malleolus is the skinny bone part, and actually to the back of the uh, ankle joint, there's a, another posterior malleolus, and that's the, uh, the fracture that now depicts what's called a trimalleolar uh, ankle fracture, and it's a highly unstable, highly debilitating, uh, a challenging uh, fracture to, uh, to deal with, and again, increasingly as patients get older, their bones get thinner, uh, you'll see uh, this type of uh, fracture pattern, again, because the ligament's more in the back of the ankle, actually stronger than the bone itself the posterior malleolus. So here, um, once again, a, another um, depiction of uh, a, a type of, of fracture called the pylon or pylon fracture, um, uh, which can occur. And uh, the x-ray to the left is, uh, is a depiction of just a simple ankle fracture. Uh, again, more torsional type mechanism. So there's a twisting mechanism, torsional. The depiction to the right is just a 3D reconstruction of a bag of bones of the, at the ankle joint. And really, this is a pylon fracture, which is kind of a very different animal. And 
and it's really more from an axial load. So this would be somebody falling from a height, uh, somebody that's in the front seat of a car and uh, the airbag deploys and the energy gets blown up from the floorboard. So that would be a pylon fracture. And again, even um, as you get uh, older and your bones get more frail, uh, simply missing uh, two or three steps on the bottom of a stairwell and having that force um, come down can create these higher energy appearing fractures called pylon fractures. Again, very challenging to take care of. So when is surgery uh, necessary? Well, again, I, I said before, if there's absolutely no displacement whatsoever and it's kind of a hairline fracture and it's a more simple fracture around the ankle, uh, we really can put most of those into a cast um, or one of the removable boots. And so fortunately, uh, if it's just that, we can, we can manage uh, uh, fractures conservatively and simply. Um, but really, more often than not, again, if we lose that ability of the ankle mortis to maintain that talus in that mortis, just much as you see, uh, that's a true fracture dislocation on the, uh, that x-ray appearance. Um, that's, that's bad, and that's when surgery is uh, necessary because it's really quite challenging, near impossible to maintain a reduction of these type of injuries in a cast. We can try, we can manipulate, we can put people in long leg casts, but more often than not, uh, when it becomes bimalleolar or trimalleolar, um, we do have to resort to uh, operative intervention, uh, again, to maintain that stability that we talked about and maintain a painless functioning ankle. When we talk about just the lateral malleolus, um, sometimes it can be, uh, if there's a fracture line that's seen, uh, they can be stable or unstable, and we have to do some special tests. Uh, this is just showing an x-ray test. We're just letting gravity um, with that ankle uh, will open up the, where the deltoid injury might be and show some instability. So we can do these tests in the emergency room or in our, in our office. They're called stress exams. And here's just an example um, where uh, it's very difficult to probably see the fracture uh, on the left. Uh, it's sitting there in the skinny bone, and it's really very, um, uh, you would say, minimally displaced. Uh, a patient like this probably has tenderness along the deltoid as you're examining them, but uh, we will generally do the stress exam, and as you can see, that same fracture on the left with the stress exam on the right shows a lot of instability, a lot of play, uh, a lot of displacement of that fibula now and that talus uh, within the ankle mortis. So that depicts the deltoid injury, the ligamentous portion um, of this injury. Sometimes we'll call that a bimalleolar equivalent. So rather than the, the medial malleolus breaking, uh, the deltoid ruptured. So what are our goals surgery? Again, that, that magic word stability is what uh, orthopedics is all about, is the, the, uh, uh, the goal of uh, creating a stable ankle and a stable mortise. And this prevents abnormal loading. Um, if the ankle joint 
heals with a lot of extra slop or a lot of extra play, it becomes an unstable and painful. Um, you, you may not necessarily uh, know that it's unstable. You certainly know that it's painful. And uh, letting these fractures heal in bad position will lead to persistent pain and therefore disability and then therefore uh, progressive arthritis. So um, I'm not sure if uh, people pointed out uh, before in any of the lectures just, um, you know, what, what do we actually do in, in surgery? How do we fix bones? And uh, without going into the specific cutting through the tissues and things like that, you know, we're carpenters. And um, this picture to the left is, uh, just shows uh, how we, in fact, fix a, uh, a little spiral fracture, an oblique fracture, through a bone with a screw. So it's the same principle of of, uh, you know, putting two pieces of wood together. That's how we put two pieces of bone. If the bone stock is good, if it's uh, willing to accept uh, a screw, and, and some bones are so poor and so lousy that we can't even get a good screw, and then we have to try other techniques. But uh, basically, that's uh, um, by over-drilling the, we call, near cortex, where that arrow is, and, and uh, by over-drilling that, once the screw hits the far end of the, the bone, it actually pulls those two pieces of bone together. So we call that a lag screw, and that's the key to our success at fixing, fixing bones. Um, we have to go further with these fibular fractures. Uh, a screw's not enough, so we uh, will put a plate um, along the fibula on the outside of the ankle, and we can put that plate in various uh, positions. This is sort of placement uh, uh, of the plate laterally. Um, and uh, in, in this mode, it's relatively stable, probably uh, only stable enough to do touchdown weight-bearing. So again, for uh, an older patient, I'm probably not going to rely just on that form of fixation. So here's an example. Again, uh, first we used, there's actually two screws on the left. Two lag screws were placed, and then that lateral uh, neutralization plate placed on the outside part of uh, the fibula to give more uh, stability for length and uh, rotational stability. So uh, there's another, again, we could use plates in different places, and, and actually uh, uh, sometimes we'll actually put the, the plate just behind the, the fibular bone, and that actually forms what's called an anti-glide plate. So it's a little bit of a different function and adds a little more stability, um, and probably in older bone is a better construct uh, since we're not as dependent on the, the screw fixation for our plates. Here again is an example of, a, of an anti-glide plate. So if you look at the, the x-ray to the right, the plate actually sits behind that fibula uh, and uh, works to uh, keep that bone from spiraling up. So we call it an anti-glide plate. So again, what, uh, reviewing our challenges, what, what happens with age? So we said it's inevitable that the, the bone quality just continues to become more and more osteopenic or osteoporotic. And um, the fracture patterns themselves actually get much more complex. So with simpler energy patterns, uh, we can see higher, uh, higher type uh, fractures.
and also the hardware can fail. So uh, we talked about, again, the diabetes being the, the current uh, trend uh, that we're dealing with and poor circulation. Uh, definitely diabetic patients have a higher risk of failure, higher risk of infection, wound breakdown, and the like. So what we hope is not to see something like that where the metal is staring at us in a patient. So we fixed the bone, but the soft tissues around have failed, and uh, therefore this is, a, quite frankly, a disaster and, and, and may need to go on to amputation. And the picture, x-ray picture on the, uh, on the right is a bimalleolar fracture was fixed, and the patient you still see staples in the skin, and they were walking on it right away, and that hardware was not able to maintain that weight-bearing status. So that's a failure of fixation and requires revision surgery. So but I'll quickly go through some uh, case examples just to, again to show you. Um, here's a, a woman with a mechanical fall, low energy, bimalleolar uh, fracture. And uh, in a case like this, sometimes we'll put screws between the two bones. So there's a plate and then there's a couple of horizontal screws connecting the tibia to the fibula to give more fixation in this weak bone. And here's the patient a year later uh, maintained that uh, reduction. Another fracture, uh, low energy, tripped on a curb. Uh, here there's a posterior malleolus fracture, and we uh, did a similar type construct, but we're able to fix that one in the back from the front with a front-to-back screw, so uh, less dissection was uh, required for this patient. And again, at a year, able to heal. Um, again, another example of what we do in patients that uh, have very poor bone. We, you can see all those screws going from the plate into the tibia, so we start to put lots of extra screws to get more more purchase. Uh, increasingly, as the bone gets worse or the soft tissues are uh, in very bad shape, so again, the lower right-hand picture shows this big fracture blister, and uh, which are not uncommon with some of these injuries. Um, we really can't operate through those those blisters, and we have to resort to other other means. And so these are some of the means. Uh, the, the two pictures to the right are external fixators, which can hold things in relative good position. The two pictures on the left are one, a clinical picture of an external fixator, skinny wires going through the bone, and then the x-ray look uh, down below. Uh, very complex. So the other thing that we talked about is in the diabetic patients. So uh, if you follow from left to right, it looks like a minimally displaced type of fracture around the ankle, uh, but that patient walked on it, and the two pictures in the middle is the resultant of a neuro arthropathy or a Charcot ankle, meaning the patient didn't feel what was going on, didn't appreciate the fact that their joint was uh, being destroyed, and ultimately actually had to put, as Dr. Tugood said, put something up the middle of the bone, a rod, to try to give this patient a plantigrade foot. So uh, that's not what we commonly what we have to do, but in certain cases we have to resort to that. So again, uh, uh, many uh, geriatric patients will have an open ankle, meaning that's exposed to the, to the world. The skin breaks through the fracture. An enormous number of uh, complication rate, 25% in one series, uh, with 
percent of those uh, requiring reoperation and even amputation. So these are not benign injuries that occur, and they again are incur occurring much more commonly. So we'll just f finish up again. Ankle fractures are uh, very common with uh, increasing geriatric uh, patients. Uh, generally, we need stability to create uh, stable mortis. Uh, there are lots of uh, different complex injury patterns and, and certainly very challenging. So thank you. With that, Dr. Meinberg will uh, <clears throat> join us. Thanks. I'll talk a little bit about uh, fractures around knee replacements, which is a uh, real um, significant problem that we face. And so I'm sure that through this series, uh, one of the things you've heard is that there are significant orthopedic challenges uh, because of um, uh, some pre-existing problems, including uh, uh, a limited ability for uh, function prior to injury as opposed to younger patients, and uh, certainly uh, how common this is becoming. Uh, our goal as surgeons is to maintain and uh, restore the pre-injury level of function. So, you know, no matter what the severity of the injury is, the way we look at it is what can we do best to uh, make sure that uh, our patients uh, walking out of the door are doing as well as they did before uh, they walked in the door or rolled in the door through the ambulance. So this is a huge problem for us. Um, and uh, for society as a whole, that uh, you know, there were two and a half million office visits for osteoporotic fractures, 450,000 or almost a half a million hospital admissions, 200,000 nursing home patients, and about $14 billion. And unfortunately, those are 20-year-old numbers. Uh, the numbers have just gotten uh, tremendous since that time, and it's expected to triple from that, and it's actually probably even greater. So I gave a talk uh, uh, several weeks ago um, about osteoporosis and the management of it, and the key problem is the image there on the right. You have normal bone having a certain amount of density. If you think of it as like coral in a coral reef or, uh, or a sponge, um, that probably gives you the best um, uh, image of what we have to work with. And quite simply, we just have thinner and less bone to work with as you get older. So that causes both a problem in uh, a worse fracture, but it also causes a problem for worse treatment. And this is something that we've really uh, evolved over the last uh, several uh, years to try to improve that. We also have to deal a lot with patients with medical comorbidities, such as heart disease, diabetes, neuropathy, uh, vascular disease, so all these things that can uh, impact the person's ability to uh, ambulate, heal well, and not have any complications while being in the um, in the hospital. And there may also be other reasons as well that we need to look into. Some we know, some the patient doesn't know, such as uh, tumors, um, uh, endocrine or other uh, thyroid issues, uh, malabsorption from the gut, or nutritional problems that patients have as well. So as I alluded to a little bit ago, that as a surgeon, we have some real problems to deal with as well. So. Um, you know, the, osteo, the poor bone quality really limits the number of uh, options that we have for treating fractures, limits the ability for the bones to heal uh, normally. We, uh, the techniques that we typically use using plates and screws that you've seen a lot of this evening uh, are, have poorer bite or poorer purchase, and, and they're more likely to pull out. There's poor bone healing, which, which is, uh, results in something called a non-union or inability for the bone to heal. And one of the things that we really look at for older patients, too, is that you know, patients really cannot tolerate immobilization the way that a four- or five-year-old child can. You can you know, put a kid in a cast for a few weeks, and they hop around and think nothing of it. Uh, 
until they jump in the swimming pool like uh, my kids did. But, uh, uh, you know, we can't do this. We get older or use crutches or use a walker or stay off the left leg. So it really is sort of all or nothing. And we kind of recognize how important it is for people to get up and be able to be able to walk and, and get moving. But, you know, some patients have lower physical demands. We have the opportunity to do joint replacements as part of the treatment. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, here tonight, um, which is, is a bit of a salvation for us because uh, in a 25-year-old that has to use their knee for 70 years plus, we, even if it's smashed into a 1,000 pieces, we have to make every effort to put those 1,000 pieces back together to get a knee that lasts 75 years. Some patients, we can easily do a hip replacement or do a knee replacement to uh, treat either the problem primarily or to treat it as a salvage or, or a follow-up surgery if necessary down the road. And certainly there's been a lot of effort and a lot of time uh, put into uh, using and developing new technologies as well as better using older technologies as well. So for us as surgeons, though, we have to be incredibly uh, careful with our technique, that there's very little room for, for error, um, that we need to um, be able to uh, uh, address them appropriately um, for our patients. And it's also recognizing that non-operative treatment may actually be dangerous. Sometimes we think less is more, or we can just sort of defer managing these things. But again, because of the mobilization issues, this becomes a real issue. So I just want to talk about some different uh, cases of patients that I've taken care of over the years with some interesting x-rays, and that's probably the best way to approach this, and we'll talk a little bit about fractures with joint replacements afterwards. So this is a woman that falls uh, with uh, chest pain. She had obvious pain and deformity about the knee. She had really bad heart disease, so cardiomyopathy, where her pumping function of her heart was really pretty poor. Uh, significant uh, diabetes requiring, requiring insulin, and she also was being actively treated for lung cancer. So, so you can imagine her uh, physical ability and strength and reserve, as well as uh, the other things that she was dealing with, were quite significant. And so she had this fracture. And uh, most of you can probably uh, make out the fact that the uh, femur is uh, broken right here, right above the knee joint. And you can also see that this bone really looks very washed out and very gray, not black and white like we see in a lot of x-rays and a lot of pictures normally. Um, but what's probably all not noticed so well is the fact that there's another fracture right down here. And she actually crushed the tibia bone, too. And literally, this is like punching uh, styrofoam in and just creating a big divot in the bone. So... We kind of had a surprise of having two significant fractures to deal with as a result of a fall. And a person that really, you know, has, has a lot of issues going on and a lot of treatment. So what we ended up doing was fixing it the way we fix in older patients. And you'll see a lot of these. Um, we either fix femur fractures typically with a plate, which is literally a large steel um, bar that has holes in it. Basically put screws through it and lock it all into place. So that's what this is here. We can line things up very nicely get the alignment, get things arranged here. And then we do the same thing in the tibia. And what is what we had to do here, again, because the bone was so poor, is that all of this is bone cement, or basically filler that's similar to use to fillings in our teeth. And that was basically put in there to support the utter lack of bone, basically get her joint up there. But it did allow her to uh, recover and to heal. And you can see that she maintained her knee. And a year later, she was actually able to ambulate. And as I said, do as well as she was doing prior to her injury. 
So some of the lessons that we learned from the cases like this include using cement uh, to uh, fill some of the bony defects when the bone isn't there, making sure the patient's able to move and to start um, uh, bending the knee and using it even before we allow walking, and then really do everything to get her up walking uh, quickly ahead of time. So JACO is basically the uh, quality assurance people for uh, hospitals across the country and something that if you want to really scare a hospital administrator, just say uh, JACO site review and you'll see people scatter uh, for every um, uh, door and closet that they can hide in. And, and so the hospital I was working in at the time, a woman fell in the hospital lobby literally right in front of a bunch of people visiting with clipboards evaluating the hospital. Uh, she had an open fracture, which means means that the bone came out through the skin, and uh, we treated it with, uh, with a special kind of plate and uh, really sort of allowed her to, to bend it immediately and wait some time to heal up. And she did well for some time, but she really came back to my office complaining of some pain. So she had good motion. She really didn't have any problems. She was functioning and doing all the things she wanted to, pretty happy. But she said, Doc, uh, when, when I move and when I sit down, sometimes my knee slides, and it, I have to squish it back together. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of such a thing. And you can see from this picture that she never really healed this fracture. She sort of has a little bit of bone that's filled in here, but you're still able to make out this big crack that's sort of going through here. But what was happening was literally this whole part of her femur was not attached, and it was sliding back and forth on all the screws that lost their fixation. The bone never healed, but everything kind of stuck together. And so as things kind of work loose, she just kind of put it back together and walked down the street and things were okay. Um, which is something that we don't deal with too much. So, you know, then of course I have to deal with now, now what do we do? And so what I ended up doing is changing the plate and uh, it may have been mentioned in one of the earlier talks is that we, we do different things including bone grafts and that's either using uh, some bone substitutes or bone from bone bank just like bone from a blood bank um, as well as some um, special growth factors and things like that that can stimulate bone healing. So we packed that into, grouted it in and filled in the area uh, that needed uh, healed. And then use some special, um, really some specialized plates and bolts and uh, a couple of unique things here that allowed the uh, fracture to heal. And she actually did um, very well. And so sometimes these very old patients, I'm, I change how I deal with this now and, and do double plates uh, so that things can't slide around or move too much. Um, and uh, using uh, much more uh, locking and things like that in our screws to how things heal. Another interesting case where things, you know, we have, I'm a trauma surgeon. I was busy in the hospital all day, as were my partners. Um, and you deal with uh, people that are in accidents, and whether they're typically we're used to dealing with 30 or 40-year-olds that do silly things and get in accidents. But this happens in an older case. And this is when I was in practice in North Carolina. Had a 66-year-old man who was hit by a truck bumper because he was trying to pull his tractor from the mud. And rather than the tractor coming out of the mud, the front of his truck fell off, and it hit him in the elbow and uh, hit him in the knee. And he uh, told me that he had a tibial plateau fracture, a fracture right below the knee in the top part of the knee uh, uh, joint before I was born, and it was uh, fixed then. So in the charming southern way of, of telling me uh, uh, my age and uh, what his past medical history was. 
And so you can see again here, very similar to the last one, we have a really bad fracture of the uh, knee joint, and then we have um, you know some some pretty old uh, screws that uh, that were basically used to bolt this together. That's really a pretty arcane use. Rick, do you know what that what that implant is? No, that's pretty old. <laughs> so, um, but basically, what it is just kind of tied things together, and, and it worked, and it healed for this guy for several years. And he also has from the CT scan that you can see just a completely blown apart elbow that uh, was very similar. Now we're ta not talking about elbows tonight, but you know, joints a joint, and lots of little pieces to put together, and it all sort of has this consistency of kind of wet, wet newspaper or uh, or wet cardboard. And you can really see the problem here. This is the CT scan that was taken. And where he had this previous injury, even though the bone is very thin and very poor, you still see some of this sort of coral-like, what we call cancellous bone, or sort of the coral bone inside here. But in his tibia, he actually had absolutely nothing. This is just a giant hole that was in his, in his leg. And so again, we have our goal of trying to get him up and healing and working. And so what, what my decision to do was to actually um, repair it and uh, fix the femur the way I'd fix a younger patient. And you can see there's just a ton of uh, plates and screws and holding everything all together. And what the important thing is, it looks like a femur again. The knee joint looks very normal, even though it's in a lot of pieces. And we're able to get him up and moving and bending. We did the exact same thing with his elbow even though that was also in a lot of places. But he had a lot of work that needed to be done. He actually healed his elbow too well and grew a bunch of extra bone around that that had to be uh, taken out and even had bone growing around the nerves and things. So that was all cleaned up and he got good function from that. But after he was done with the elbow, as you can see, that he really developed some collapse. He sort of has a knock-knee deformity of the knee where the joint looked pretty good beforehand, but it's completely bone on bone. You know, these little cysts and all these problems through here. So he was walking and bending, but he was not very happy. But what this bigger surgery allowed me to do was actually proceed on to a knee replacement surgery that allowed him to get very good function and good return to function. And in a sense, being able to get the entire foundation of the femur back together, even though we kind of knew it was a hard thing to fix and a hard thing to deal with, allowed us to give him a very normal knee replacement that's going to last him for a long time and give him very normal function. So he did great with that and was able to um, deal with it. And one of the things that was a lesson from this surgery was uh, converting complicated problems, like the way he originally presented, into... Um, into simple ones that we can deal with with more routine um, management and something that is done with uh, common, common techniques and common implants and things like that. So periprosthetic fractures are also very common. This is one around the um, around a hip replacement, but we also see them in uh, around knee replacements too. And they happen uh, about uh, one in uh, 200 uh, first-time knee replacements, and they happen in a greater range between 1% uh, and 5% of redo knee replacements. And because there are so many knee replacements done in the country, this is something that's rare for you if you have a knee replacement, but it's becoming increasingly common for us that are taking care of the people of San Francisco or any uh, common city because so many people are getting knee replacements on a regular basis. Typically, these fractures are relatively simple. They happen right above the knee replacement where you have the stiff metal and, again, this very soft osteoporotic bone. 
the, the fractures around the knee because people fall on their knees, land on their knees, twist their knees, things like that are much more common than around hip replacement fractures. And then sometimes you get fractures that are in between the two. One of the things that can happen, though, is that the bone quality can be incredibly soft and incredibly poor. And sometimes what happens is there's, there's basically no bone that's left. So this is the bone that's glued to a knee replacement in a fracture, and there's really nothing there. It's just this little shell of bone, and there's not, there's not much that is able to uh, be able to hold on to. And so sometimes we have to deal with some of those issues. There's not any good way for us to take a look at it, so we really have to look at each person individually and see how to take care of it. There's a couple of different systems of, of how to uh, uh, see if the bone is in good condition, if the implant is in good condition, and whether these can be fixed very easily. As I mentioned before, we want to fix these as stably as possible. Basically make sure that the leg is the right length, right alignment so it functions well. People can start mo moving as quickly as possible and ultimately get their best uh, treatment goals that they can. Non-operative management really is not a good choice for patients um, unless uh, we're, we are not having a good pre-injury function. We just feel surgery is too risky. But then uh, we really have a couple of ways of taking care of these. So either a locking plate like you've seen in some x-rays or a retrograde nail, which is a, which is a big metal rod that basically shish kebabs through the inside of the, inside of the leg um, and holds the pieces together. So this is a very common way to take care of it. As you can see, a plate like we saw before can actually be used around a knee replacement and allows people to bend and move right away. It's also done with, without significant big scars and incisions to allow the bone to heal well. We actually don't want to disrupt or um, interfere with the, the muscles and, and the blood clot and things like that because we found that the bone can heal much, much better if we don't mess with it too much. And so again, we have a fracture that's like this, and we're treating it with some special implants. This is a special locking plate that was uh, used especially uh, a few years ago. And then ultimately we're treating it like this. And through a very tiny incision, you can see just a little bit to get the implant in, and then just some poke holes to put the screws all the way up the thigh. And so this allows the person to heal much quicker, also allows them to get moving much quicker because there's less damage to the muscles and everything. And it doesn't hurt as much when you have a tiny scar or incision. And this is a... Um, uh, this is a rod that uh, is called an intramedullary nail that I was talking about, too, that's put in just through a poke hole around the knee and is, uh, is basically threaded up the inside of the femur to the different parts. This can uh, be used um, uh, relatively commonly. It's a little bit harder in a knee replacement than it is with a regular femur fracture because you have to deal uh, with the openings in a knee replacement. So this is looking at a knee replacement of one design that has a big opening in the bottom of it that allows us to do that, but there are some that actually are totally closed off and don't allow it to be used. But basically what we're able to do is put this rod up inside the knee and then lock it with some bolts that you actually uh, thread in through a guide through here, and it basically holds everything in place to allow people to walk. So you can see here that this fracture is completely stabilized. You've got these bolts that are through here, and it really allows the person to get up and move. And again, this really has only about a one-inch incision by the knee and some little poke holes that allow a person to get up and moving right away. 
So sometimes you can even get a uh, fracture in the tibia around a knee replacement. This is something that is very, very rare. Um, unfortunately, it causes some real problems for us. So either we fix it with what we call ORIF, for fixing it with plates, or, um, or redoing the um, knee replacement itself. So this is a, 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 can be also used with uh, uh, rods occasionally too, such as in this case. Uh, right here, so we can actually kind of um, uh, thread these rods around and uh, hold the knee in place. Unfortunately, the person can bend the knee, but is not able to walk until this is uh, fully healed. One patient that I uh, treated uh, several years ago was an 84-year-old farmer that liked to uh, drive his tractor just up and down the farm roads to get from place to place and visit his friends. And unfortunately, he got hit by a car, drove into a ditch, and then had this fracture where the knee replacement basically um, fractured around the, the top of the, of the knee, and then it actually kind of came out through the bone and through the skin. And, we're, and you can see that there, but we were able to open this up and uh, get this lined up very nicely. Again, another plate similar to the femur, but a little bit different design. Uh, bolted this into place, and we were able to allow him to, uh, to uh, bend the knee immediately. He didn't need a cast or anything like that. And then very quickly, he was able to walk on it. And again, he was able to have a very good return to function. So, you know, in conclusion, um, fractures around the knee in anybody is a really complicated problem. Uh, certainly in uh, geriatric patients, if you have a joint replacement or if you have poor bone quality, really is a challenge. But you know, it really is our job and our goal and our interest to be able to get people to be bending and moving and returning to function uh, normally. It may take quite a bit of time to do that, but it certainly is possible. So that's my talk. Uh, I think we came just under the wire. Yeah, so the question is, what kind of metal is used for the, the types of things we see? And there's really two major metals that are used. One is stainless steel, which a lot of these plates are made out of, and a lot of knee replacements are made out of. Just like in your car bumper or something like that, it's incredibly durable, it's incredibly strong, and it's incredibly stiff. So that can work very well for some functions. Some implants are also made out of titanium, which is the other thing that you hear about. It has some benefits. It's a little bit softer. It's a little bit more flexible, uh, a little bit more difficult to work with, but the body really likes titanium. And so that's a whole other topic as far as how, how things grow into and onto uh, different implants like that. But those are the two common things. And whether you're talking about joint replacements or plates and screws or sports implants or spine implants or things like that, those are the things that both have really been used for 50 years plus with very good results and really with limited problems for, for patients on a whole. So the question is, how important is weight-bearing or putting weight on your bones to keep bone density? And, and, and the short answer is very important. Uh, it's really use it or lose it. There's a lot of studies that show uh, that weight-bearing exercises and non-impact exercises even are incredibly useful for maintaining bone quality. Um, and that's one of the things that we often you know, try to, to get our patients to deal with. And there's some very interesting research that's going on as far as ways to stimulate, uh, rather than using pharmaceuticals, to build up bones um, quality, but, but ways to trick the body to think that it's weight-bearing. So there's some things that are like shaker plates, or basically a vibrating plate that, that stimulates the bones that have shown some promising early results. Um, exercises, things like that, are, are all so, incredibly useful. So if you do a lot of walking, then that, that would be... Absolutely. But what about something like a 
a bicycle, especially a recumbent bike, is that weight bearing? It's it is. That's a good question. It's partially weight bearing. It's not nearly as. Um, as uh, good for weight bearing as walking is a recumbent bike certainly is somewhat useful because you're loading the joints you're moving the muscles you're putting pressure across it but a recumbent bike certainly is very useful for people to sort of unload their back especially if you have back arthritis one thing with cycling that's interesting since it has become such a popular sport over the last 10 years we're actually seeing a lot of these cyclists you know the guys with the tights and the pointy hats that are like racing around all the traffic they're actually having a problem with early osteoporosis because they're spending so much time exercising but they're not bearing the weight that you know and and up and walking because there's several hours a day even they're they're pedaling furiously they're sitting the whole time and uh, that's actually showing to be a, a a new issue that we're, we're just discovering. It's a, it's a good question. It almost always happens because of trauma, but the severity of the trauma certainly gives some examples of people that are in a, you know, very high, what we call high energy accident, a car accident, or something hits them really big, you know, like the, the guy that was hit by the truck bumper. Uh, but sometimes we see this from uh, as simple as um, tripping and falling and landing on your knee or falling on your hip just like a hip fracture. So it may be a very low energy injury can cause these, these types of injuries, but it's very rare for it to be a spontaneous fracture. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's a phenomenon called stress shielding. And, you know, basically, as we talked about, so the bones see weight and they react to weight and they actually get harder and built up. Think of calluses on your hands or, or on your feet uh, at the pressure points. Your bone does the same thing. And these parts of the bone that, uh, that are kind of uh, hidden by the knee replacement or are uh, protected and bypassed by the stem of a hip replacement or something like that actually do get softer and they do get thinner with time. And I think that's a big reason why we see uh, the fractures at those locations then much more common being significantly higher up because they are kind of being bypassed and protected. So that is, that is an issue. So the question is, can, can uh, items like bone grafts be used for um, things besides knees and hips? And, and the answer is yes. We use it all the time. We certainly talk to patients if we are going to use something like that. Uh, but we use them in young patients. They're used in children uh, for dealing with uh, some special pediatric bone issues. Um, certainly any patient where we have a hole to fill uh, that either we're taking it from someplace else on the person themselves, uh, which is a sort of self-donated bone graft, or, or we are very commonly using it from a bank or using some sort of engineered product that works like that. But it's, it's used incredibly commonly throughout orthopedic surgery, throughout dentistry, throughout spine surgery, everything like that. Depends on what you need it to do. So the question is, how do the biologics work that we use for these things? So there are um, certainly medications that we use to decrease bone absorption. When we're trying to fix a bone or fix a fracture, really what we're trying to do is put a little fertilizer in the field and try to improve the bone healing. Because certainly a person that is unable to heal the fracture, it's frustrating enough if it takes two to three months to heal a fracture, but it takes six months or a year really puts people's lives on hold and can cause some real problems. So we want to heal these as quickly as we possibly can. And, um, and so as a result, we do have a lot of these things that either are faking being bone as a biologic 
or are some sort of miracle growth for bones, these uh, what we call BMPs or bone minimal proteins that really attract and stimulate the bone growth from the precursor cells to try to jumpstart and improve that process. That's kind of a mixed bag, honestly. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a, it would be an incredibly complex, diverse recipe of things that need to do this right. And right now, we're sort of getting the individual pieces and um, you know, have had some successes, but it's, it's not the you know, wow factor. Yes. <laughs> Calcium and vitamin D, honestly, I think there's a, there's a lot of good research that says it's beneficial. Uh, I think I gave a talk that's in the archives a couple months ago about that. Uh, by and large, I think most experts think it is a good thing. The extent of the benefit is, is variable. Most people are lacking calcium and vitamin D, and they, they probably should be supplementing it, and there certainly isn't harm. Your body will take what it needs and pass the rest through. So definitely a safe thing to do. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.